we are on chapter 9, the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 9, Christ of the Covenants. I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to look at some scripture together uh, first, uh, as usual. Hope you picked up an outline on the way in. We will uh, touch on some of the things in there, uh, but we'll see how far we get this morning uh, just with some scripture. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for uh, this work that we're reading. Uh, we thank you for your word and the promises of the covenant of grace. And we thank you for your signs and seals, the sacraments that you have given us. Uh, circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New. And all of the feasts for the people of Israel and now the Lord's Supper uh, for your church. We thank you for the ways that you uh, remember our frame. You know that we are dust you give us these tangible signs uh, to give us assurance and to grow us in faith, to confirm our interest in Christ. Lord, we pray uh, that you would give us glad hearts, even as we consider coming to the table today. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to be um, uh, encouraged uh, by your word. Help us to be assured by your promises. Help us to come to you in faith and gladness. Uh, help us to uh, challenge and to sharpen one another in our knowledge of your scriptures today as we study. Uh, we pray that you would use these words from uh, Robertson, help us to consider them well, give us wisdom, give us discernment, uh, and help us to learn more about your word and your promises in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in uh, chapter 9 today of Robertson dealing with the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. Before we do uh, that, before we look at our outline or any of his arguments, I do want to start, as, uh, as I like to start, just looking at some scripture. Today we're going to look at two separate passages, um, a similar format to the last time I taught two weeks ago. We're going to look at some passages and make a few exegetical comments. We're going to try and stay away from the comments that Robertson has already made because the first section in his, uh, his chapter this week uh, was really a, a section of theological exegetical comments on Genesis 17. But we're going to look at Genesis 17 again. And then we're going to turn to the New Testament and look at another extended passage dealing with another sign and seal of the covenant of grace uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. We're going to read um, oh, the first 14 verses together. And then once we've, uh, once we've gotten through these passages, we are going to look at the outline, uh, sort of follow through Robertson's argument, the main points that he's making in this chapter. Uh, and then I have really enjoyed the conversations that we've been having the last few weeks. And so after that, I'm going to open it up to you for your questions, for your observations from the reading. And if there's any time left, we will turn to some of the, uh, the canned discussion questions, the, the pre-made discussion questions that I have on the back if we if we still have any time. Uh, but Genesis chapter 17, uh, this is uh, Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. <clears throat> when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, 
And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Uh, just a few uh, observations as we look at this. The first one, uh, just as we see this and we compare it to the chapter in uh, chapter 15 where God cuts the covenant with Abram, uh, what we see in both of those passages is Abram in various ways uh, sort of out of the picture, flat on his face, incapacitated, uh, in chapter 15, he enters into this deep sleep of darkness. In chapter 17, the Lord shows up, uh, and Abram immediately falls on his face. Now, in one sense, we could attribute that to the normal way that humanity reacts to God. Uh, when God shows up, when the angel of the Lord shows up, very often uh, people fall on their face. Uh, they are undone. It's the same uh, reaction that Peter has in the boat when all the fishes are drawn in and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. We could attribute it to that sort of normal reaction. Uh, but the command that God gives immediately before we're told that Abram falls on his face is a command to walk. Right? It's this, it, the Lord shows up, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. Then Abram fell on his face. Uh, the juxtaposition is too good uh, to be unintentional. Right? What we're seeing here, just as we saw in chapter 15, is that Abram is unable to make the promises of the covenant real for himself. He is unable to fulfill all the goodness that God is able to do for him. In fact, uh, in chapter 16, uh, Sarah suggests that he do exactly that. So chapter 16 is the whole fiasco with Hagar and, and taking her to be his wife and having, uh, having a child uh, by another wife and a different lineage, and it's this attempt uh, to fulfill what God has said he would do for him. In fact, we saw that already in, in chapter 15, Abram is crying out to the Lord, uh, how will I know, because uh, Eliezer of Damascus remains uh, the one who will inherit my household. He's, he's looking and wondering, how can these things be true? The Lord shows up in chapter 17 after he's made this covenant, and he says, walk before me. And Abram falls on his face. But what do we learn there? Well, we learn that this is a sovereign promise by God. And, uh, and I think it, it sets up uh, the language of the seal. Um, so Robertson points out the fact that this covenant sign, chapter 17, comes in the context of Abraham's failure, chapter 16. Uh, and in this way, the signs of the covenant 
serve a purpose of assuring God's people of the authenticity of God's promises. He is the one who has promised uh, and will make these things come to completion. Uh, this is the language of seal when we apply it to the sacraments, that they are an authenticating sign that God gives to us. Just like you, uh, you buy whatever thing that is liable to be copyrighted infringement uh, or, or, or bootlegged or whatever, and, and they have that little holographic seal. No, no, this is a genuine Apple product. Oh, okay. Uh, this, is, this is not uh, you know, a knockoff. The, the, the sacraments are uh, that holographic seal. Right? It's the stamp of approval. God has given us this sign to assure us that he will keep his promises. And so that's something that we need to keep in mind uh, as, as we deal with this. Also, as we look at this passage, you look in verses 4 to 6, and what we find is God speaks in terms of promises already fulfilled. Notice verse 4. Verse 4, he says, you shall be the father of multitudes. And then verse 5, he says, I have made you the father of nations. Well, uh, who? <laughs> when? And in fact, it is from this point on that God changes his name uh, from Abram to Abraham. Uh, and so this is, this is now uh, God treating Abraham as though the promises are fulfilled. God often does this with his people. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that passage beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And there is this dynamic in the gospel, in the New Testament letters, especially with Paul, where he is challenging the people to be what they already are, right? He, he, he comes to them first with the promises of the gospel, like he does here in 1 Corinthians. He says, no, 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 th these things are gone. The old has gone away. The new has come. You're a new creation. And then he begins to push them in that direction, essentially telling them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've received. The calling that they've received is new creation. Now he's saying, now you need to, to live that out. God deals with you through the covenant of grace, through the, the lens of promises already fulfilled. This is what he's doing with Abraham. You will be the father of nations, of multitudes. I have made you the father of nations, he says. So this also touches on the assurance that we find uh, in the sacraments. Uh, the signs of the covenant, God's promises are portrayed as fulfilled. Water cleanses. Food nourishes. Now, of course, we who are baptized still deal with the remaining stain of sin. And there is coming a day when the last remnants of sin will be washed away for all God's redeemed people. There will come a day when, uh, when we will feast with the Lord and will not need regular sustenance and regular looking forward in faith. That's one of the things that the Lord's Supper shows us is, is that forward look to that marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a day when faith will become sight. Nevertheless, these, these signs show us promises fulfilled so that we would be assured of God's promises. Here's how Derek Thomas puts it. He says, when tempted, Martin Luther would repeat the phrase, baptismus sum, that is, I am a baptized man. 
Baptism, our own baptism, is a reminder that by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, my sins are wholly forgiven. And I have peace with God. I need fear no condemnation, not, not now, not ever, for Christ has borne the curse of the law in my stead. So again, this idea that the sacraments are given to give us assurance of God's promises. Not a work that we perform for the Lord, but a gift that he gives to us to show us uh, all of his goodness. Another thing to notice in chapter 17 that, uh, that corresponds and sets up the conversation about sacraments uh, is that all the attendant blessings of the covenant, uh, in this case with Abram, the blessings are land and people uh, and blessing, uh, that he would be a blessing to other nations. All of them, as we've seen earlier in Robertson, are wrapped inside this relationship of reconciliation. You notice uh, that framing the beginning and the end, um, oh, verse 7, verses 7 and 8, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Okay, what is the covenant? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. There's this relationship language. That's how God begins. And then he talks about attendant blessings. Verse 8, and I will give you, your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He comes back at the end and speaks of this language of reconciliation again and this, uh, this language of a relationship together. And so there are bookends on both sides. That there are things that we experience, blessings that we receive through, uh, through our union with Christ, but they all come to us because of this relationship, this reconciliation that's been worked for God's people through his Savior, uh, through his Son, uh, and, and we are brought into that, um, that relationship. Uh, this is important because when we talk about the covenant of grace, when we talk about the blessings that come to us, uh, and, and we could turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, what are uh, the benefits of redemption? Well, we tend to focus on two of them. We tend to focus very often on justification, that God declares his people righteous, because of Christ's righteousness imputed to their account, and we tend to focus on sanctification, uh, that God actually causes us to grow in holiness and godliness more and more after the image of Christ. And so we focus on those two, but in the shorter catechism, it says there's a third one that we often forget, and it's the blessing of adoption. So here's what the, the catechism says. What is adoption? Well, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. How is it that we receive the blessings of God's covenant? Uh, how is it that we uh, are justified and, and are continually sanctified? Well, God makes us his children. He, he says, I will be God to you, you will be my people. Uh, and he gives us this promise of a relationship. And we see that in seed form already uh, in, uh, in this covenant with Abraham. And we'll see it later as we go through the rest of the signs and, uh, and uh, the administrations of the covenant. And then lastly here, um, I think lastly, yeah. Lastly here in, in this section on uh, Genesis, verses 9 and 11, uh, Robertson mentions briefly this relationship uh, between the sign of the covenant and the covenant itself. So um, I think it's in his exegetical comments on page 148, he says, the seal of the covenant relates so closely to the covenant itself that the covenant may be identified 
as the seal. So take a look at verses 10 and 11. Uh, God says to Abram, uh, Abraham now, um, he says, This is my covenant which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then verse 11, he says, uh, The circumcision in, your, in the flesh of your foreskin shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Well, which is it? Is circumcision the covenant, or is circumcision the sign of the covenant? And sometimes these things are spoken of interchangeably. Uh, we find this in the confession as well. This is chapter 27, section 2. Chapter 27, section 2 says, There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Understand that language there. That there is a relationship between the symbol that we see and the reality that it is symbolizing to us. Okay? There's in every sacrament a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So, uh, this helps us to understand what Jesus says in the New Testament when he says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. Right? We don't have to go and say that it becomes or is uh, transfigured into his actual blood, that the bread becomes his actual body. We don't have to believe that his body is physically present at the table, but there is a sacramental union whereby the, the sign and the reality that it signifies to us are united. The same thing happens in the New Testament. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism and union with Christ Jesus. Of course, baptism is a washing of the body. And so you turn to 1 Peter, and he says, Baptism, which corresponds to people being saved through the ark, now saves you. Wait a minute. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, do we believe in baptismal regeneration? We said, no, no, no. Not in a washing of the body, but in a, a, an appeal to God for a clean conscience. So there's this sign, uh, the cleansing ritual, the incorporating ritual uh, for God's people, and there is the reality that it signifies, an inward spiritual cleansing, and sometimes the scripture speaks interchangeably of these two, just like God speaks to Abram, and he says... This is my covenant, which you shall have in your, the flesh of your, your bodies. And then he says, this is a sign of the covenant. And God is putting these two together so that we would tie them, so that we, like, uh, like Martin Luther, can say, baptismus sum, right? We are baptized individuals. Not that the baptism itself, the cleansing of the body, saves, but it reminds us of that spiritual reality that we can't put our hands on. Right, that's one of the benefits of the signs and the, and the seals that God gives to us. Uh, he knows that we are frail and we are fleshly and we are limited by the things that we can see and taste and touch and smell. And we can't see and taste and touch and smell union with Christ. But we can see and taste and touch and smell the signs that he's given us. And these are the assuring sign that he gives to us. Uh, and so this is, uh, just a, these are just a few observations that, that I think are, are important in Genesis 17 that, uh, that Robertson hasn't drawn out yet. Next, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the Lord's Supper. And I know that this is, uh, this is confusing categories a little bit because uh, this chapter in Robertson was not about the Lord's Supper. Uh, he didn't mention it. Uh, it was really just about uh, circumcision and its, uh, its connection to baptism. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, 
one, because he doesn't have a separate chapter on the Lord's Supper, and two, because there are some obvious parallels just in the way that the Lord works through the sacramental signs that he gives to his people, uh, that this is uh, a profitable conversation. So we're going to read this, this passage, and instead of me giving all of my uh, take on this, I'm going to ask you as we're reading to look for parallels. What are some parallels that you find in what we've just read in Genesis 17 or parallels that you have found through your study of Robertson this week that help us to understand what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We're going to pick up uh, in verse 23. We're going to read through verse 34. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 23. You need to know we're skipping over verses 17 uh, to 22, but there is a problem happening in the church People are going ahead and they are partaking of the Lord's Supper in a selfish manner, right? They're not doing it to have fellowship together and fellowship with the Lord. They're doing it as something that is for them. Uh, that is pretty typical of Corinth, uh, where all of their spiritual gifts are used to elevate the individual rather than to edify the body. Uh, so this is a, a variation on a theme, if you will, as they're coming to the table now. And Paul even says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating when you come together. You're doing it so incorrectly, so selfishly, that you've perverted it. It's no longer the Lord's Supper. And so he reminds them of the basics of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. <coughs> Excuse me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so first, uh, let me kick it to you. What are the parallels that you see? What are the, the, the things that you find, either that we just studied and, and discussed in Genesis 17, or the things that you, you found in Robertson this week? Any parallels? Oh, my wife gets me a Kleenex. A noble woman who can find, thank you. I found one. A, a noble woman. Right. What's that, Dave? You can do them both wrong. Both of the sacraments can be done incorrectly. Elaborate on that, please. How can, uh, how can the sign of circumcision be done incorrectly? Uh, or, or baptism or the Lord's Supper? What are you thinking?
that's one wrong way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, notice, <coughs> excuse me, notice uh, Paul's response. They are doing it incorrectly. They're making it a selfish thing. And so he doesn't tell them, you know what, you guys don't deserve it. Just stay away from the table. He says, no, no, no. Uh, let a person examine himself then and so eat and drink. The answer is not to not do it at all. The answer is to do it correctly. The answer is to go back to the original uh, sign. You see this in the Old Testament, right? And Robertson talked a lot about this. He talked about the idea that in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of God's people as uncircumcised in heart. They did the sign correctly, right? They applied it to the body, but it was always meant to be accompanied by this spiritual reality that they did not have and didn't even care to have, right? Uh, it became this badge of their nationalistic uh, fervor, the, the, this identifying mark for the Jews. And so Robertson talks about the fact that it was always meant to have both a Godward dimension and a manward dimension. <coughs> So they can both be done incorrectly. What is the result uh, of an incorrect uh, administration or engagement in the sacraments? Judgment. We see that in the Old Testament too. And we need to remember this because those who have received the covenant sign of baptism and who later on go to denounce or renounce their faith are not just treated as unbaptized people. Their baptism becomes a witness against them. Just like the circumcision and the flesh of the foreskins of the Israelites became a witness against the uncircumcision of their heart. Those who come to the table incorrectly without discerning the body of the Lord come and eat and drink judgment upon themselves. It is not a zero-sum game. It's not like you only get a positive or nothing at all. Paul says, no, no, this is why some of you have fallen ill and died. Uh, and that's a weighty thing. Okay? Tim. Uh, and, and the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Right? Who can know it? Uh, but God gives to each one as he deserves, uh, not according to what man can see, not according to we, what we can tally. Right? Our righteousness doesn't consist in tithing mint and dill and cumin and, uh, and giving the, the nth of all of our tithes. Uh, no, it, it consists in, in a heart of love for God the Father, uh, to love him with the heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, it is an inward reality of, of love and fear toward him. You're going to hear a lot about that today in, in the final verses of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, and so it, it can be something that we do for self-righteous purposes, right? And, and with a self-righteous uh, self-delusion. Yeah. Which is why Paul commands here, examine yourself. Right? 
He doesn't even just say, uh, you know, we could just jump to the end. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. All right, good. The problem is we're not waiting. As long as we wait, we'll be fine. No, he says, examine yourself. Why is it that you're going ahead of one another in the first place? Why is it that you're making this a sort of greedy thing for your own gain and not something that you're having fellowship with one another? And he's saying there is an inward reality that you need to pay attention to. It's not just get all the outward things in order uh, and then everything will be okay. Good, good. Other parallels here that you see between 1 Corinthians and Genesis 17 or 1 Corinthians and, and what we've read in Robertson this week? Or just thoughts? Yeah, Landon? Yeah, but we see that again. Uh, actually, in my notes, I had, I had this reference for that earlier discussion, and then I quoted something else. <laughs> so, yeah, good point. Well, that's what you say, that's yes. Like And I think the, uh, the, the spiritual reality is what we find, um, you know, rabbit trail here. In Titus chapter 3, how does baptism save us? Uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 4 of Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We apply water to the body to symbolize the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon God's people, which, by the way, is why pouring and sprinkling are legitimate modes of baptism, but that's another discussion for a different time. Uh, this is the language of the New Testament, that God pours out his Spirit, he washes us, uh, and baptism uh, shows us that unseen reality in a way that we can, we can put our fingers on it, literally, uh, and we can see it. But there's this, this unity, baptism saves you. How? Well, the Holy Spirit washing his people. And here's a symbol that shows us what's going on. Good. Any other comments or, or uh, parallels that you find here? How does what apply to wisdom? It didn't. All right. Now, <coughs> no, that's a great question. Uh, and, and one that we see the, uh, the broader implications of the New Testament gospel that go beyond just the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, circumcision was not applied to women. It says explicitly in, first, in, in Genesis 17, it shall be applied to every male of your household, whether native-born, or bought with your money. When we get to the New Testament, we finally see this language that there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but in Christ they are one. And so we have a, a wider sign that is applied to both genders and, and is the same symbol given to both. 
thing, right? And so it was, it was in, a, in that sense, um, lacking, right? We can say uh, that for, uh, for God's own purposes, the things that he gave to the Israelites were lacking because it sets us up to look for something greater. The tabernacle was lacking because it was setting us up to look for the greater one who was to come, the tent not made with hands, but the one who was to enter into the Holy of Holies, Jesus Christ, through the blood of his sacrifice. Old Testament things were lacking so that the fullness would come in Christ. The Old Testament sign of circumcision was lacking. It only applied to one gender so that when Christ came, it would be broadened. It would include not just those who are Jews, not just those who would want to be joined to Abram's family by flesh, but all those who were joined to Abraham's family by faith. Male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. So that's how, uh, that's how that would apply. <clears throat> Cynthia. Yeah, and, and as we're spitballing on this theme here, we need to be careful because the New Testament does not do away with spiritual headship in the home or in the family, right? Um, and so that's not what we're implying, um, but think of, uh, of the, the graciousness of Paul finding Lydia of Thyatira. We have no mention of a husband. Was she divorced? Was she widowed? Was she single? Uh, who knows? We don't know. We know that she was a woman. Uh, and we know that she was uh, a part of the church, and a church uh, was meeting in her house later. So she also would have uh, received this same sign. And, and there was no sort of like, well, Lydia, we like you. We like all that you're doing, but you can't have that. Um, now, for good purposes. You know, and even when I say that the covenant sign of circumcision is lacking, I, I don't mean to imply that it was wrong or bad. It was given by God, it was a good thing, and it was purposely limited so that we would see the expansion of the gospel. And I think you're exactly right. It brings in different nations, brings in different families, it brings in all people uh, under, under one banner, uh, Christ people. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, uh, if you get into the, the language of the New Testament, it, it doesn't say uh, when it speaks of... Uh, we, Contemporary people love to use gender-inclusive language. The New Testament doesn't say that we are sons and daughters of God. It says that we're sons of God. It's specifically non-gender-inclusive uh, because in Jewish society, it was the males who inherited. The females inherited nothing. Uh, they had their inheritance through uh, their husband, through the family that they married into. In fact, there's an Old Testament Thing where there is a man who had no sons and they were trying to decide in the allotment of the tribes how to divide his inheritance when he only had daughters, right? So you can see that. But there is this expansion. Now, even the women in the New Testament time and in the church inherit just like the sons. 
And so men and women together are called sons of God. And if you're offended by that, too bad. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how it is. Uh, I heard uh, somewhere this week people are, are getting up in arms about people who just say guys uh, as a, a, an inclusive, whatever. Uh, Kathy, your, your comment. Yep. Yeah, well, yep. Uh, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Uh, well, uh, in this time, the Lord's Supper was also often associated with a fellowship meal. And so there was enough bread and wine uh, to fill yourself and to get drunk. Uh, and so people were going and saying, well, I, I'm going to take it for myself because it's about my spiritual experience. It's not about us sharing fellowship together. Right? So when we look in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, it says the, the cup that we drink, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship in Christ's blood? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia? There's meant to be fellowship at the table, and they were using the table for their own selfish ends. Uh, and, and others would be left out because there was literally nothing left. Right? So he says, one gets, one gets drunk, uh, another goes hungry. This, yes, that's one of the reasons. Uh, now, this connects also to this idea of uncircumcised in heart in the Old Testament. So if you, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses uh, 16 and 18, notice the, the connection of circumcision of the heart with social sins and ills, right? So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 and 18, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For, in other words, because, why should you not be stubborn? Why should you be circumcised in heart? For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the, soge the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What does it mean to be circumcised in heart and to be no longer stubborn? It's to care for the people around you the way that God cares for the people around you. Right? So this is one of the problems uh, with receiving the circumcision sign without having the circumcision reality. The same thing is happening all over again in Corinth. Right? Oh, I've, I've got this sign, and it's for me. Wrong. It's for the church. <laughs> it's for all of you together, and you want to serve one another and build one another up. That is one of the overall problems that we see in Corinth, and you can see it tracing all through the, the letter. But it, it connects also to this, this sacramental sign and what it's meant to do. It's meant to unite God's people together, and it's supposed to have social dimensions as well. Tim, you've been patiently waiting. Thanks for jumping into our class. Welcome. Oh. Yep. Yes. What do you think, Tim? <laughs>
so the, the way that I have heard it best explained is that there are at least three dimensions happening here when we're told to discern the body. And even among Presbyterian pastors, there's a lot of discussion. What exactly does this mean? Uh, but think of the context. He has just said, um, verse 24, this is my body which is for you. Right? And so he says, if you eat and drink without discerning the body, what is the body for? The body of Christ. That's the first level. Uh, the context is too close to ignore that connection. If you come to the table and, you, and you're not uh, realizing, what is this about? Well, it's about the one who gave himself to save sinners. I don't come to this table because I deserve it and deserve it more than the next person who won't get any. But I come because God gave his son to take on a body to give that body for me. I come as one who is brought by the body of Christ broken. That's the first dimension. The second dimension, 1 Corinthians is the book speaking of the body, right? We're all members of one body. When he talks about um, uh, the, the body together and, and even the context, the beginning and the end, one goes ahead, another uh, goes hungry. So wait for one another is the final application. There is this corporate body going on. And so if we come to the table and we're thinking only of, even only of ourselves and Jesus, we're missing it. A uh, long time ago, uh, I was very confused. I went to a, my Methodist pastor at the time. I said, I think I would like to have something special in my private devotions. Can I have my own communion ceremony? He said, yeah, go ahead. So I did. It wasn't communion, right? Because there was no body. There was no church. Who was I having communion with? Nobody, right? But he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Wrong. You have to come and discern the body. It's a corporate thing that we do there. So there's the, the second level. And then the third one, it comes right after he says, let a person therefore examine himself. And so there is an individual body as well that you need to discern. What's going on in me? Uh, am, am I coming to the table again with a righteousness that allows me to come? Right? Do I, sadly, uh, in the Presbyterian Reformed uh, history, People used to come with tokens. Literally, they would come to the table once a year, and the pastor would go around, and he would meet with them, and he would catechize their children, he would examine them, he would interview them, and he would give them a token. You have passed the exam. You may come to the table. Well, we exercise discipline in the church sometimes, and some people are kept from the table, but when we fence the table, we pass it, right? I'll stand up here. You'll hear me say it today. <laughs> if you've not done this, don't partake. Allow the elements to pass. Don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And then we give it to you, and we let you figure it out, um, because you're supposed to examine yourself. So I think there are at least three dimensions going on there, uh, that we discern what Christ's body is for, we discern the corporate body gathered around the table, and we discern what the Lord is doing in us and with us, because it goes on to speak of judging ourselves truly. And so there, I think, is... Uh, a good case to be made for at least those three. All right. Well, I promised you that we would look at Robertson uh, because it's a book discussion class, right? So let's think about that a little bit. Uh, I've given you this handout, uh, and we can just walk pretty quickly because we've covered quite a bit already. Um, 
three sections in this chapter, the original significance of circumcision. We have talked a lot about that. We'll skip over that. Uh, but to say that what he, he draws out uh, in this, the theological significance is that when we think about circumcision, it was a sign of inclusion. It was a sign of cleansing. And it was a sign that was meant to be given to families. This sets us up for seeing baptism correctly when baptism replaces circumcision in the New Testament. It is a sign of inclusion into the body of Christ's people, into the corporate body. It is a sign of cleansing. That's why we now wash with water. It's maybe a clearer picture for us that the Lord was gracious to give to us in our frail frames. And it is also a sign given to families. And so there is a, there is a carryover when um, <clears throat> the language of, of Genesis 17 is, is almost lifted, <clears throat> excuse me, and dropped into Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins uh, and, and receive the Holy Spirit for God's promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so it's given uh, as inclusion and cleansing given to families. <clears throat> so that's the first section. He talks about the significance, theological significance. Then he talks about circumcision uh, in the Old Testament history and theology. Here's where we get this Godward and also manward dimension. And if we leave off the Godward dimension of these sacraments, it can degenerate into something that's only for us. That's the way it happened very often. For the Jews, that's the way that you see it happening when Paul is dealing now with, with Jewish Christians who still want to differentiate between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Who want to say in Galatians, no, 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 you can't become a Christian. You can't have salvation unless you also become a Jew by circumcision. This is the gate by which you get in. No, 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 no. The, the Jerusalem Council gathers together and they say, uh, no, actually, there's a break here. Uh, we, we will not require Gentiles to be circumcised, uh, but they maintain, they hold on to the reality through baptism of, of this Godward dimension of, uh, of circumcision, what it was meant to be. So he says on page 153, at its very essence, circumcision is a covenantal sign between Israel and its God. This fact indicates that circumcision should never be regarded purely as a national badge. And so we see also in this section where he goes on to talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles, right? This idea, even through circumcision, a Gentile in the Old Testament could become a Jew. <laughs> you had God-fearers and you had proselytes. You had those that were on the outskirts who could go no further than the outer court of the temple. Then you had those who would receive the rite of circumcision and be, uh, be brought into the full inclusion of the Jewish people. Now we see that um, in the discussion that Robertson has. Um, page 154, the circumcised Gentile becomes an Israelite. Since this is the case, obviously Israel cannot be defined simply in terms of racial distinctives. This is the top of page two of your handout. Uh, this is important. Uh, because there are still uh, Christian churches today that believe that God has parallel tracks. He's got a redemptive plan for national ethnic Israel. He's got a separate redemptive plan for, Jew uh, for Gentile believers. No. The New Testament says we are the circumcision. And it joins them together. And says that it, it really is the reality of this inward symbol 
the, the outward symbol that we receive, it's the inward reality of union together with Christ. And Jews and Gentiles both receive that by faith. God has one redemptive plan for all people through all times. Not universalism, but only one. You're either in this one or you're not. Uh, and then uh, there's some further evidence in there. There's uh, the, uh, the uncircumcised in flesh and heart. And that goes on to talk about uh, the fact that those who were termed uncircumcised were not just outside Israel, but it was a moral dimension that was being implied. Uncleanness, defilement, unworthiness. And so there's this idea of the sanctified in heart uh, or, or the unsanctified in heart. And then the last section of this uh, chapter was the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament symbol. And this really is tracing the, the development where circumcision uh, was showing us realities that are continued and taken up by a new sign. The sign of circumcision is replaced by the sign of baptism. Right? So there's an outward thing that, that needs to pass away. This is the Jerusalem Council issue where uh, they refuse to, uh, to uh, make uh, Gentiles uh, become circumcised in order to become believers. Dave. <coughs> Uh, so we see that particularly in the Philippian jailer. Um, now, uh, Robertson makes the point uh, that if baptism is not household-centric, there is an enormous break with everything that the sign of circumcision intended. Uh, every Presbyterian uh, elder worth his salt will tell you that there is no New Testament verse that tells us you also should baptize babies. But it's a logical continuation uh, that if this is a sign for households uh, that we see in the Philippian jailer, he believed and he and his household were baptized. Were there babies in the Philippian jailer's household? I don't know. Were there servants? I don't know. How many people does it say believed? Philippian jailer. How many were baptized? His household. Uh, so yes, there is a continuation here uh, and if we follow that, that uh, language again in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, brothers, what shall we do? The promise is for you, for your children, as many as the Lord will call to himself, even those who are afar off. So yes, there is still a family-centric element to the New Testament sign. Okay. So there's a decisive break with the requirement of, uh, of circumcision. That's point 3A in your outline. Uh, and you can read that later. Point 3b, the spiritual reality symbolized by circumcision continues to have significance for the new covenant believer. Right? So there is still this spiritual reality of cleansing and inclusion that happens through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's been taken up by a new sign, uh, but it endures even though New Testament believers are not required to be circumcised anymore. In fact, to require them to be circumcised, he says, is an anti-gospel. You can see he talks about that in Romans uh, 4 uh, and Romans 2. Uh, the, uh, the reality that it's pointing to, this is on page 3. This is point 3B2, if you're, if you're following your subsections. 3.B.2, the seal of circumcision finds its reality in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That brings us back to that Titus passage. How are we saved? Well, God pours out his Holy Spirit by washing, regeneration, and renewal. 
And he gives us, uh, there's that sealing language again, uh, he gives us the authentication. Uh, the seal in, in speaking of the Holy Spirit is our down payment by which we are kept for these wonderful and great, very great promises that are waiting to be revealed in, in the time that the Lord has ordained. And then finally, he, he ties it all together and uh, talks through Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Circumcision under the, new, the old covenant is replaced by baptism under the new covenant. This is one of the most important New Testament passages for understanding why it is that we believe in, in the Reformed Church uh, that circumcision uh, has now been given over to the sign of baptism. Paul says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by being baptized into Christ and into his death. There is judgment, just like the sign of circumcision. There's death and resurrection. Uh, there is cleansing. There is inclusion. Uh, and the sign of, of baptism now for New Testament believers takes up all the significance that the sign of circumcision was meant to have for Old Testament believers, but it's expanded, as we already spoke of, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles, also to women, and also to all those uh, whom the Lord will call to himself. Now, uh, the, the final piece, page 166, that quote there, in the fullest possible sense, baptism under the new covenant accomplishes all that was represented in circumcision under the old. By being baptized, the Christian believer has experienced the cleansing rite of circumcision. So that's sort of the culmination. Uh, if you haven't read the whole chapter yet to get the, the, the steps on that argument along the way, I encourage you to. Any final questions or comments before we break for today? Kathy. <laughs> that, that was a very sheepish hand that you were putting. Uh. So, you will see in your discussion questions, think about this later in, in your, uh, your families or, or conversations, under New Testament fulfillment, right? Acts 2.37, Peter commanded his hearers to, quote, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, sub-point, respond to the common objection. This would be the Baptist objection that because baptism is tied to faith, it should not be applied to children or infants who cannot express faith. Paul, or Peter says, repent and be baptized. How has this chapter clarified or obscured this issue for you? So this is essentially, in, in a single sentence, uh, the, the argument, um, it's a lot larger than that. That's why we still have Baptists and Presbyterians. Um, but essentially, they would see this as saying, well, uh, it, is, uh, it is commanded uh, that you believe, you repent, and be baptized. And so you do this as, uh, as one who can express this for themselves. We would say, well, this is a sign looking forward uh, to faith, just like circumcision was a sign looking forward to faith in the, the individual in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? That's one of the arguments. The other argument is, is, uh, is textual, 
they would say there is no New Testament verse that commands us to baptize children, therefore we shouldn't baptize children. And the Presbyterian argument would be you misunderstand the continuation between the Old and New Covenant. Right? You misunderstand the fact that circumcision in whole has been replaced by baptism. Baptists, uh, you know, no offense to any Baptists who might be among us, uh, Baptists would generally see a, a large distinction between the two, would not agree with the continuation of the sign or the significance of the sign. Uh, for, for Baptists, baptism is a new thing, right? To which I would say, how did they recognize what John was doing? Well, he came baptizing. We were told that you know, the one that was going to come and, and prepare the hearts would be the one who's baptizing. You must be Elijah. If this is a totally new thing, where did they get that idea? Right? So there is a continuation. This is why that, that chapter that we had earlier, uh, the unity of the covenants is so important. God does not have a different redemptive plan that in the Old Testament you receive circumcision and work out the law. No, no, no. You receive circumcision and even your children receive circumcision looking forward in faith to the one who was to come. In the New Testament, you receive baptism and your children receive baptism looking back to the one who has come. And there's a, con uh, a continuity between the two. Good. I hope nobody else has questions because we're out of time. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the covenant of grace. We thank you for Christ, our surety, and the Holy Spirit, the seal given to your people. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the benefits of redemption, justification, and sanctification, and adoption as well. Thank you for making us part of your family, your household. Give us faith in you. Encourage us, even as we come to your table, uh, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have fellowship with you and with your people. We pray in Jesus' name.